we approach the Word of God again this morning, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, again, we bow before you, recognizing our great dependence upon you. For without you, without your Spirit illumining to us the truth of what you have given us, it's just mere words on the page. We need your mind, your heart. We want to know what you mean by what your word says. And so help us this morning to understand these things, that our lives would be enriched by the example of Jesus Christ and that your great name would be honored and glorified through us. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you with me this morning to take your Bibles and open them to our study of Romans chapter 7 as we continue our study through Paul's great treatise on the doctrine of salvation. The most wonderful truth in the world is to know that you can be made right with God. There is no more better news to ever hear and to ever acknowledge and to ever embrace to know that your sin can be, in fact, forgiven. To know that your guilt before God can be satisfied. To truly know that you can be saved from the wrath to come is the very greatest news you could ever hear. It is through the gospel that we can know the righteousness of God that saves all who will believe. Paul said in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the righteousness of God for all who believe. In it is the righteousness of God. And it is this wonderful truth that Paul himself knows, and Paul desires all of us to personally know. And so, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7 as we study this wonderful book on salvation. And we are discovering what the Christian's relationship is to the law since being saved by grace. Now, as we have been studying this, and I'm sure as you've heard in our Sunday school class, as Neil has been teaching through Galatians, which we could really consider a similar book on reference to the subject matter, although honing in on this issue of law, by law, when we say law, Paul or we are not necessarily or technically speaking about the law of the land, the law of the land in which we live. In other words, the laws of America or the laws of whatever country it is you might be in at the time. But rather, we are referring to the law of God. The law of God, which, by the way, assumes the rules and regulations that reflect him in his very character, even those rules and regulations under which we live in a country whose government God has sovereignly placed there to place us under. So in one sense, while we speak of the law of God and we think of the word of God in that sense, we can also put under that any law by which God has sovereignly placed us under is the law of God. And so for the purpose of this study, we are looking at 
our relationship to the law of God in reference to salvation and in reference to sanctification or holiness or holy living. How someone is saved, the law in reference to how someone is saved, or the law in reference to how someone is holy. And the question that we are literally dealing with is this. Does the law have any bearing upon us as Christians? Does the law have any bearing on us as Christians since we know that we are not saved through keeping of the law? We've learned that already. No one is justified by the keeping of the rules and regulations, whether they be man-made rules and regulations or whether it be under God's law. We are not saved through keeping the law, nor are we made holy through the keeping of the law. We are not saved, justified through the keeping of the law, nor are we made holy through the keeping of the law. So what then is our relationship as Christians to the law? If it cannot save us, if it cannot make holy us, then what is our relationship to the law? That is what we have begun to look at over the last time we were here in Romans. And as I said before in Romans chapter 7, we can divide it up into three primary sections as you look at the whole chapter at large. Our Number one is our relationship as Christians to the law. We looked at that last time in verses 1 to 6. Our relationship as those who have been saved by grace through faith, what is our relationship to the law? And we looked at that last time. If you weren't here, you can go and get that online and find out uh, the answer to that reality. We'll touch on a little bit as we go through our time this morning, but not as specifically as we did last time. Two, the second section is verses 7 to 12, or really 7 to 13. Verse 13 is a summary of what has taken place, but we entitled that section, The Ultimate Purpose of the Law. The Ultimate Purpose of the Law, and we're going to talk about that somewhat this morning. And then third, the final section, verses 14 to 25, and that is the Christian, or our battle with remaining faithful. Our battle to remain faithful. Now, just by way of reminder, since it's been a couple weeks, we can summarize our relationship to the law in this way. One simple statement. Our relationship as Christians to the law, one simple statement, it's described this way. We We have died to the law. That's the simple statement. We have, as Christians, died to the law. In other words, Paul says in the first six verses, just like in a marriage, just like in a marriage relationship, whereby each person is legally bound to the other until death do them part. Until death happens, there is a legal bond that takes place. So too, prior to salvation by faith in Christ, we who are now Christians, we were bound to the law. In what way? We were bound to the law in this way, as a means by which we could make attempts at being righteous before God. That's the bounding. We were, we were locked in, married to the law as the means by which we would make attempts to become righteous. We were married to the law. It owned us. We were 
legally bound to it. There was no other way of being righteous before God except the law. We were bound to the law. And what we will find out is that none of us, or what we have found out, is that none of us could actually keep the law of God so as to be actually acceptable and righteous before God. Thereby we are found to be guilty. We are found to be violators of the law of God. And the penalty, as we know, was and is death. Death eternally, death physically. The wages of sin is death. Sin equals any violation, any transgression of the law of God. All of us sin, therefore all of us die. The proof that we're all sinners is the reality that all of us die. We learned that several months ago. We all die. But Christ came, thanks be to God. God in the flesh. And he lived under the law. He perfectly obeyed the law, not showing righteousness, not becoming righteous, but rather showing his perfect righteousness. And while he did not deserve the penalty of death under the law, he was therefore put to death by sinful men. There was no sin in him. And yet by the hands of sinful men, he was put to death according to the predetermined plan of God, as Acts tells us. And so by faith in Christ, all who believe in him, as Paul said in the first or in chapter five, we were in Romans, we were put to death with him. We were buried with him and we were raised with him to new life outside of now the jurisdiction of the law. Remember, the law has jurisdiction only over the living. Our, our laws, even in this country, say if you if you kill someone, if you have premeditated murder, first-degree murder, you're going to be accountable to the law, and that may mean, according to the law, you die. Well, once that execution happens, the law has no bearing upon you anymore. It's only upon you once you live. Those who have died are no longer bound to the law. It no longer has jurisdiction over them by means of condemnation. And so we also, we who are true believers, like Christ and being in Christ, have died to the law. It means that we as Christians are no longer bound to the law. We are no longer bound to attempting to be righteous before God by means of the law, and we are no longer bound to the result of the law if we disobey condemnation. We can never follow the law without Christ. And yet Paul will say to us in Romans 8, chapter 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only is the righteous requirement of the law gone, but the righteous condemnation of the law is also gone in Christ. And so Paul could say to us in chapter 7 and verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that which, by which we were bound So that now we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. 
The oldness of the letter was the old way. That's how we tried to do it. That's how we attempted to be righteous. Now we serve in newness of life. I love the word released in that verse. I hope that if you are a Christian, you love that word released. We have been, in other words, something took place in the past which has ongoing results into the future forever and ever and ever. We have been what? What was that that we have been? We have been released. I love that word. We have been removed from the sphere of operation of the law. We have been taken out of from under it. And so as Christians, we are no longer bound to the sphere of operation of the law. We have died to it. The marriage that we had to it is finished. We have died with Christ. Now, we have a new goal. The new goal is no longer to attempt to try to live according to it in order to gain righteousness or to be holy in some kind of way. The goal is no longer that which we could never achieve. We are now unbound to the law so that, Paul says in verse 6, we might serve. Serve what? Serve our new husband. Who's that? Jesus Christ. We might serve Jesus Christ. How? In newness of the Spirit. So what is the purpose of the law then? If the law was unable to produce righteousness in us, if the law was unable to make us holy in any kind of way, then does that make the law sin? If the law can't do that, if it can't make us righteous, if it can't make us holy, then doesn't that make the law a bad thing? Now, I trust you can understand the logic from the mind of those whom Paul has been preaching to in this text and including all of us. I hope hope you can understand the logic of those who have been trying so hard for their entire life to be righteous, to be holy on their own. I hope you can understand the logic of the moralist who's who's been working all his life to try to be humanly moral in order to be right with God. The logic is to say that if I have tried so hard to be good, if I have actually even done such a great job at being good, if I am better than all of those around me, None of that works. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Then there has to be something wrong with the law of God. If it can't even make me right with Him, then the law must be sin. The law must be a bad thing. That's the essence of the next question that is being posed to us. Verse 7, if we are no longer bound to the law, then what's its ultimate purpose? This is what's dealt with for us in verses 7 to 13. And I want to read it for us as we begin our time this morning, and then we'll just dive in a little bit to it today. Notice what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's the essence of the question. May it never be. On the contrary, 
I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Because I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Because apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Because sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So then the law is holy, righteous, or the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I hope you notice that the reading of that text, that the question that is abruptly asked in verse 7 is summarily answered in verse 12. Is the law sin? The law is holy. Verse 12, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The question is asked in verse 7 and in verse 12. The summary answer is given and everything in between those two verses is an explanation of how the law shines its exposing light upon the sinfulness of sin. Which means that the law is a means of grace for all of us in humanity to recognize our need for a Savior. So we need to understand this about the law of God. The law of God is a gift of grace. The law of God is a gift of grace. I hope we understand that as Christians. The law of God is a grace of God given to us out of mercy for us. God did not have to give the law. Have you ever thought about that? God did not, in His wisdom and in His greatness, in His character and in His righteousness, He did not have to tell us anything about what is required of us before Him. That would not have diminished His holiness. It would not have diminished His righteousness. It would not have diminished His character in any kind of way. God's reflected character is seen through what He has made. He didn't have to tell us anything, and yet, he did. Grace upon grace, God gave us His law. Out of grace, born out of His heart of mercy for those who are lost, God gave us His law. He had it recorded for us, and He summed it up in ten statements. And the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, even boiled all of that down into two primary statements which deal with our relationship to Him and to our fellow man. Now what do we do with that? 
What does mankind do with the commandment of God? Man takes those commandments and man only looks at the outward acts. Man takes the commandments that you find in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are listed. And man determines his own standard of obedience to them. And he determines that by comparing himself to how others are not obedient to them by their outward acts. But the main essence of the commandments are reflected in the final one. The main essence of the commandments are really reflected in the tenth commandment that Paul highlights for us here. You shall not covet. realize this coveting is not an external act we read the ten commandments thou shalt love the lord thy god with all your heart soul mind and strength cover the first few and the rest cover thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself and yet the tenth commandment says you shall not covet that's not an external act that's an internal condition of the heart it's reflected through the violation of any and all of the other commandments. Coveting can be equated with idolatry. To desire other things more than God Himself, that's idolatry. And by the grace of God, we have the law of God, we have His written Word sitting right there in front of us, right upon our laps. And when we look at it, what does it do? It exposes every area of our hearts that are filled with the strong desire for all the things that dishonor God. This is why some of us don't want to read the Word of God. We say to ourselves, it just is too convicting. This is why some of us don't like to come to church. Because someone will stand up and proclaim the Word of God and we go, that's just too convicting. That's why we want to go to somewhere where they'll tickle our ears and tell us something that we want to hear because it's comforting. The Word of God exposes us. And so Paul says in verse 7, what is the purpose of the law? The first thing that Paul uncovers for us here in this text is this. It shows us the inner depth of sin. What's the purpose of the law? To expose us to the inner depth of sin. Paul says in verse 7, is the law sin? Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. We cannot just get rid of the law because we are under grace. Is the law sin? Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Paul says it's just the opposite. If you think the law is sin or the law is bad, then you don't understand yet justification by faith. If you think the law is bad, then you need to realize what a gift of grace it is from God because the opposite is true of thinking that the law is a bad thing. Paul says, I would not know sin except by the law. Now, I want us to pause here for a moment simply to ensure that we understand what Paul means when he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. 
because we can get in our minds that Paul means that he wouldn't have, he, unless the law came, he had no understanding, no knowledge of sin whatsoever. He does not mean that he had no knowledge of the fact of sin. He does not mean either in himself or in others that he had no idea about sin. This is the first time he ever heard of it. Paul is not saying that. He has already declared already in Romans that all of us have the law written by God on our hearts. Whether you have the scriptures on your lap or whether you're an aborigine living in the jungle somewhere and you've never had the word of God, you have the law of God written on your heart. What do we mean? You know right from wrong. And therefore, you know sin. In other words, all people know that God requires them to honor Him. All people know that. The reality is, as Romans 1 told us, we just simply suppress that truth in our own unrighteousness. So there is a general knowledge of God in all people. Even the atheist who denies that God exists. The reason he's denying that God exists is because of the reality he acknowledges there is a God. If there wasn't a God, why would he deny that God exists? It's just reality. We know there's a God. We just suppress it. But what Paul is meaning here is that he would not have known the nature and depth of sin unless the law made it clear. He wouldn't have fully comprehended the depth and nature of the sin that was in him unless the law made it clear. It is the law of God that opens up to us the full character, the full meaning, the full depth of our sin. Is that not the intent of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can say, well, they don't know what I mean. They, somebody, they don't know my motive in that. My motive is pure. And yet the word of God comes in and divides down to that section and says, really, here's your motive. And as I have said already, this is a marvelous grace of God. Why? Because the trouble with an unsaved person is that they do not yet understand the depth concerning their sin. And the law opens them up to that. You see, they have a moral code. They have something they're living by. They they live believing that certain things are right and certain other things are wrong. But, but that is, in and of itself, not to understand sin. Just because you have a moral code, just because there's this system of right and wrong that you may be living by is not that you understand sin. Why? Because if you truly understood sin as an unbeliever and you understood the depth of your sin by its nature, you would run to Jesus Christ for salvation, understanding what it means. The reason you're not running to Jesus Christ as an unbeliever shows that you don't yet understand the depth of your sin. reason, the reality that people do not understand the depth and nature of their sin is proven in the fact that they are not running to Christ for salvation. Paul says, I would not have known sin, meaning 
I would never have discovered what my sin truly produced. I would never have discovered the reality of what my sin produced for me unto eternity without the law coming in. Were it not for the commandments of God that that shined its bright righteous light upon my life, I would not have known the depth of the darkness of my very sin. You say, but what is he specifically talking about? Notice he explains it to us in the last part of the verse. Paul says, I wouldn't have come to know sin except through the law. That's kind of a generic category. That's kind of a big thing. I mean, we we could say, well, I, I know sin. But Paul says, I wouldn't have known it except through the law. Well, what do you mean, Paul? I would not have known about coveting. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So now, Paul introduces us to an illustration to illustrate the reality and depth of sin and how far it goes. Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. So so what do you mean, Paul? Well, I mean by example, if the law did not say, do not covet... I wouldn't have known the depth and nature of all the coveting that takes place in my life. Now remember that coveting is not an external act. Coveting is an internal reality. It's an an internal reality that is seen through outward activity, but coveting is an internal reality. Coveting is lust. Now, when we hear the word lust, we immediately think of immorality and those kinds of things. But that's not the idea. Certainly that is in there. But the idea from the word epithumia is just a strong desire. That's what the word means, a strong desire. A lust certainly is that, a strong desire. But the idea is something that we set our heart upon the desire for, the strong desire to set your heart upon something. Our our modern way of saying it is, I really want that. I'm driven by that want for that. That's the idea. Lust is a strong desire. Notice what verse 8 says. Paul says in the end of verse 7, I wouldn't have known about coveting unless the law said do not covet, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. So what Paul means by coveting is a strong desire for anything that's off limits. It doesn't matter the category. It doesn't matter the area. A strong desire for anything that is off limits. A strong desire for anything that is lawless. First commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing is to be more than God. And oftentimes what we do as Christians is we start to categorize God and we put him into little categories and we fit him into our schedule and into our time frame. And if we can fit God in, that's when we, i.e., worship God. But if it doesn't fit, if the schedule of my day, if how I've orchestrated my life and the events of life take place and overrule that, well, God, just get in line. It'll Someday it'll all come together. 
word, epithumia, for lust here, or this idea of coveting. See, that's the word. It's used 38 times in the New Testament and normally in a bad sense. Anytime you find that word, it's usually in a bad sense with the idea of craving something that is absolutely forbidden. Particularly here, when we're dealing with God, it's forbidden by God. And so Paul is saying, I wouldn't have known what strong desires I had and what it truly means for everything, the strong desire I had for everything that is forbidden if it wasn't for the law commanding that I should not desire anything in that way. Do you know what Paul is saying to us? He's saying this. I wouldn't have realized that desires, lust, epithumia, evil thoughts and imaginations, internal things, I wouldn't have realized those things are just as much sin as the outward act. You see, sometimes I can pat myself on my back and say, well, I haven't done that. I haven't acted in that way. And yet my epithumia, my strong desire, has been there all along. That is as much sin as the outward act of it. If the law had not told me, I wouldn't know that. You ever think about your sin that way? Or do you put it in the categories of outward activity? Well, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, you talk to an unbeliever and you say, are you a sinner? They say, well, I haven't murdered. I haven't, you know, done evil things to the other, the opposite sex. I, have, you know, I haven't abused children. I haven't, they, they give this list of acts. That's not how God thinks. Let me show you this by way of example. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ on the earth, beginning his first sermon, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's preaching to everybody, but he, he really is honing in on the religious, the religious, the, the quintessential idea of the religious were the Pharisees, those who kept the rules perfectly. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul said, listen, according to the law, I was blameless, he says in Philippians. I mean, you want to find a better Hebrew, you'll not find one other than me. I was at the top of the game. And so the Pharisee is that quintessential one. And the Pharisees are teaching people, and they are deceiving themselves in thinking that as long as you did not actually do something wrong in activity... As long as you didn't murder somebody, as long as you didn't do that, you weren't guilty of murder. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is dealing with this, and notice what he says in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Now, that's interesting that Jesus would say that. Jesus is the one who gave the Ten Commandments to the ancients in Exodus chapter 20. Jesus is the one you have heard that I told way back then, you shall not murder. Whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. 
you commit murder, you're going to have an accountability to it. That's the law. The law says don't do this. And if you do it, you're going to be liable. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That changes it, doesn't it? No longer is the outward act the thing that's the reality, it's the inward. The Pharisees failed to understand the real meaning of coveting. You know why somebody kills somebody else? James chapter 4, verse 1 says, the reason you do that, the reason you have quarrels and fightings among you is because you want something. You have a strong desire and you're not getting it, so you murder. That's what James says. Listen, it's the heart issue. It's the hate in the heart. It's the desire in the heart. It's that epithumia to want something. And that's why you do the very things that are forbidden. Jesus says, listen, the outward act just reveals the heart. It's the heart that's the issue. They failed to see that. Strong desire was in and of itself sin. Their conception of the law was fundamentally flawed in their mind. And Jesus comes along and he shows them that the law is essentially spiritual, not by the letter. The law is concerned about the heart. If the heart is made right, the heart is walking according to the Spirit. The act is pleasing to God. Now go back to Romans. By the way, he just doesn't leave it at murder in verse in, in Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning back, he talks about adultery. He talks about other things. We're familiar with all of that. It's not the act on the outward side. It's the lust in the mind, the heart. Paul is saying, the law opened my eyes. The law opened my eyes to the intent and depth of my sin. And when I saw the law, when the law said, you shall not covet, I saw the reality. I came to see that to covet is just as sinful as the act of doing something. Paul says, I learned that to desire is as sinful as the deed itself. To desire is as sinful as the deed. Paul says, I never understood that before the law came. Oh, sure, sin was there. Sin was in the heart. Sin was acting. Sin was doing its thing. But I didn't see the depth of it. I knew my sin before, but when the law came, I really knew my sin. See, as Christians, we experience that, don't we? We say, man, before I knew I was a sinner, but then God saved me, and now I really know how ugly I am. Man, everywhere I turn, sin is there. Every time I open, I open my eyes in the morning and my brain starts to operate, sin is there. I mean, oftentimes, sometimes in my dreams I'm sinning. Paul says, let's be clear. The strong desire for that which is not of God is sin. 
strong desire for that which is not of God is sin. Maybe I could say it a better way, a different way, so that we're not confused. To desire sin, listen, to desire sin is sin. Even if you never do the sin. To desire sin is sin. Even if you never do the act. We can sin in thought. We can sin in desire if even if we never act upon it. God sees our hearts. He knows that they are sinful even if we don't act upon it. And Paul says it was this depth of sin that woke me up to see my need for a Savior. It was this depth of sin that opened my eyes to it. And so Paul says the law is a good thing. And the first thing the law does for us is just that. It shows us the inner depth of our sin. When we open the Word of God, it does exactly what Hebrews 4.12 says. It divides down to the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Oh, beloved, don't hate conviction. Don't run from conviction. Love conviction. Embrace conviction. Desire conviction because conviction is the outpouring, the result of a heart that sees exactly what God is saying. And certainly the law is there and it's exposing and you're convicted about it. Run to God. Run to Christ. Love. Learn to love that conviction. It's showing you the inner depth of sin. You say, well, how? How is it doing that? How is it showing me the inner depth of my sin? This is the second thing that Paul says the law does. It stirs up sin in us. That's how it's doing. It stirs up sin in us. We, we touched on this a little bit in verse 8, but I want to I hone in a little more. He says in verse 8, but sin. See, the law says thou shalt not covet, but sin takes opportunity through the commandment, through the law, And it produces in me coveting of every kind. Apart from the law, sin is dead. You say, why does the law stir up sin in me? Why, as Christians, does the law stir up sin in us? Well, it's not because there's something wrong with the law. Verse 12, the law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. So there's not something wrong with the law. The problem is that it comes because of the nature and the character of sin. That's why it stirs it up. Now what causes this to really happen? Sin causes it to happen. Sin takes opportunity through the commandment and produces in me coveting of every kind. Sin takes opportunity to get it through the law. What does that mean? Well, it means that sin makes the law its base of operation. Sin makes the law its base of operation. In other words, sin uses the law as a weapon against us. We're going to see next time, I'll just give you a little precursor. We're going to see the reality that sin's utter sinfulness is shown by the reality that it takes what is good and and It just makes it bad. 
Sin takes opportunity. It uses it as a weapon against us. It means it's a military term in the original language. It's the idea of a military base where the, where the troops are prepared, where the weaponry is, is brought together and assembled for war, and where the troops depart out on a military operation to go and, and seize whatever it is that's out there that they want. And so Paul is saying that that's what sin does with the law. Sin makes use of the commandments of God, the thou shalt not and the thou shalt, the scripture. Sin makes use of all of that as its base of operation to stir up our flesh. Stir up sinfulness. Sin takes the commandment about coveting, strong desire, the prohibition to covet, and it uses it as its base of operation to what? Uses it. Paul says, to produce in me coveting of every kind. Produce. That's a powerful word. That's a powerful word. That's the word some comedians seize on when they say the devil made me do it. That's the idea. They want to use it that way, as if they're not guilty. As if it wasn't them. I was just a victim of circumstance. That's a powerful word, especially powerful in New Testament language because it means it means to work powerfully and to accomplish something. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that sin takes the commandment and it works powerfully in us to accomplish what it wants. Sin takes the what is good, and uses it in us to accomplish what it wants and not what the commandment commands. Now, don't equate sin with Satan. Satan's not doing it. Sin is. Okay? And and what is it producing? Paul says all kinds of coveting, all kinds of strong sinful desires. Anything that is against the commandment, you want to test this at home with your children? What do they want? Whatever it is they want, tell them they can't have it. You know what that's going to do? It's going to stir in them every way in which they can figure out a way to get it. That doesn't mean you don't give the commandment. That just shows them how sinful they are. You tell your children, no, get your hand out of the cookie jar. You're not having a cookie. What do they want? They want that cookie. I was just down with my grandchildren in Ohio. That's the sad part of being a preacher's family. You're always used as a brunt of an illustration somewhere. <laughs> Tell my grandkids not to do something, and they're looking at you going, Are you really serious? That's what it does. That's what the commandment does in us. Don't covet. would really be good for me. Start to rationalize all the ways that it would be. The law says do this. Worship God. That's a command. Worship God. In all your life, worship God. Love Him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And sin takes that and opens the Pandora's box of our flesh and shows us all the desires in the opposite way. Shows us everything we can do to not worship not honor 
make excuses as to why we can't. Listen, there's something we have to understand about our fallenness. Something we have to understand about our fallenness. Quit giving so much credit to the circumstances around you, to the things around you, to to your your life and how you grew up and all those kind of things. We are consumed by strong desire. We are consumed by our own passions. The reason you do what you do is because you want to. The pre-flood world was consumed by strong desire. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The intents of the heart were wicked all the time. And if you think the flood eradicated that, Genesis chapter 8, after the flood happened, the world is gone except for eight people. Their hearts are filled with wickedness. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that sin, using the commandment of God, using that which is good as its base of operation, simply stirs up every manner of strong desire to do the opposite of what the commandment says. You say, well, how does it actually do that with us? The answer is in the fact that we are born rebels against God. The answer is the fact that we are born sinners. The law of God comes along, and the law of God reveals the mind of God concerning what God would have concerning us, and at once, immediately, Our rebellion against God is aroused and stirred up and the strong inner desire for our own autonomy starts to work. God says, bow to me. Really? I'm not going to bow to anybody. I'm self-satisfied. I'm self-made. I'm independent. And so we resent the idea of the law. We resent the idea of the command. We resent the idea of God saying, you must do this. We hate it. You want to know how we say that here in New England, especially in New Hampshire? I'm going to live free or die. We hate it. Rule over us? No way. It's our our natural condition. We hate the notion that there's anyone who's going to cause me to bow to them, even if it's God. You can't tell me what to do. No way. That's the spirit of rebellion that's in us. It's innate in us. The Bible says, love the neighbor as yourself. We say, who's my neighbor? Let my outward act define my righteousness, not my desire. Listen, that's a sinful heart. That's how it works. Several years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones described the day and age in which he was preaching, living. He died in the 80s, so it wasn't that long ago. I'll just read it to you. Let's see if it resonates. He said, quote, the great characteristic of this age which does not believe in God, is lawlessness. Dislike of discipline and order in any shape or form. People today have a rooted dislike of law and of sanctions and of punishment. We have almost reached the stage in which we do not believe in punishing anyone 
A murderer almost becomes a hero who engages public sympathy. The prisoner gets more sympathy than the victim. Thus, the whole idea of right and wrong is rapidly disappearing from the human mind. But sin is lawlessness. It is rooted, it is a rooted objection to any law, any commandment, any prohibition, any notion of wrath and punishment. And this works itself out in endless ways. One way, he says, there's no longer discipline in the home or in the school. Children are not to be punished however much they misbehave. No one is told they have failed. Don't you love it today? Everybody gets a trophy just for participating. Boy, I wish the people who, I I bet the professional athletes who played in the Super Bowl or the World Series thought that way and got that. Oh, hey, we were just in the league, so we get a trophy too. He goes on to say, this negative attitude toward anything which favors discipline or punishment is one of the ultimate ends of lawlessness. The moment the natural man hears of the law, he reacts against it and resents it, and sin is the root cause, unquote. Sounds like our day, doesn't it? Not very far from us. Law comes along and says, don't do that. And sin uses it to stir in us all the ways to do just the opposite. Don't tell me I can't do that. And it's the desire for the opposite that is ignited in us when the law says don't do it. It's the desire, the strong desire to do the very opposite in us. And we want to do the opposite. And sadly, and far too often as Christians, we do it. says by telling me not to do it it introduces me to it and my sin runs all the things in my heart as how I can do it opposite to what God says whereas before I just ignored it I didn't know the depth now I want to do it all the more that's how sin works folks Apart from the law, Paul says in verse 8, apart from the law, sin is what? Dead. He doesn't mean gone. He doesn't mean eradicated. He doesn't mean it's not on the scene. He just means it's laying quiet. It's not stirred up. It's just laying quiet. It's like Pilgrim. When he goes into the room and, and, and the one comes in and sweeps the floor of the dust and the dust fills the room, that's the idea. The law sweeps it up. The sin comes in and, and takes the law, sweeping up all the areas in which I can sin. And the only thing that squelches that is submission to it, to the law. He's not saying that sin's not existent. Simply saying that sin is quiet, but the law comes in and begins to clean the room. The dust of sin is stirred up in every direction. So, why is life like it is today in our day and age? Why is it like it is? Because man hates the law of God. The law of God only shines, it's bright light upon man and men run in every direction of lawlessness. I don't want you to tell me. But if we know Jesus Christ, we're Christians. 
we've been saved by grace through faith, then we understand sin. And we understand we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And the Spirit loves the law. The Spirit loves the law. The Spirit highlights the law. The Spirit wants to do what the law says, and the Spirit drives us to Christ. And the law causes us to rejoice in our marriage to our new husband, Jesus Christ. That we're no longer living according to the oldness of the letter. But now, in newness, in the newness of the Spirit, as Paul said in verse 6. Now it's all new. So is the law sin? Not a chance. Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't get rid of the law. The law isn't bad. The law is holy. Commandment's holy. Righteous. It's good. Is the law sin? No, 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 no. The law shows us the inner depth of sin, and the law stirs the sin in us so that we would see every area in which that sin is happening. There's two more in this text. We're going to save those for next time. Thanks be to God for his gift of grace, the law. Thanks be to God for the law. Not as a means of righteousness. Not as a means of holiness. You'll never be holy by the law. You'll never be righteous by the law. But as a gift of God's grace in order to reflect in us the very righteousness we have in Christ. As we walk not according to the letter, but according to the Spirit. It's a gift of grace, as we'll see next time, so that we can see just how sin ruins us. Just how it ruins us. What is our attitude to be towards the law? I'll just say this. Psalm 119, verse 97 and following, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. It's not something we must hate. It's not something we can set aside and say, Ah, oh, we're under grace, not under the law, so therefore the law is invalid. No, no. We love the law. What it does. I'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the richness of your word, for the truth that we have, for the grace that you've shown us by giving us your word. Lord, we know we can't do it without you. We know we're totally ineffective to even walk according to what your word calls us to walk to. Without the Spirit of God, we know that that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There may be those here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ. They, Oh, sure, they've attached themselves in some kind of way to religious activities, thinking that in those things they're made righteous. But, Lord, I hope this morning they realize that it doesn't matter how many times they hang around a church or how many times they do some morally good thing compared to the world. Unless they know Jesus Christ by faith, they have no righteousness of their own except their own. And they will pay a price eternally in hell if they do not repent of their sin and turn to Christ alone. So that is our prayer this morning, Lord. That not only would those who don't know Christ embrace Jesus Christ, but that all of us who know Christ by faith would run to you 
that we would open your word, embrace the conviction it brings so that we might turn to you in full dependence, not walk according to the flesh, walk according to the Spirit so that your, your great character and nature would be seen in us, proving the righteousness that we have in Christ. So thank you for these things. Bless your name in and through us, we pray in Christ's name.